The last couple of weeks, we've looked at the area of money. I think that's been very good to look at that, very real. Uh, some of us have real anxiety and fear around money. Some of us uh, have debts that are a real burden. And uh, some of the questions we had to the panel last week about people uh, having problems with gambling and how that eats away at their life and their life opportunities. So there's lots of issues around money. Some of us have got money. And there's the issue of how to manage our resources in a way that honours God and is responsible. And also how to get into the generosity of God. God is the great lover and the great giver. And if we learn to be responsible with our finances and to give in faith and give generously, then we're tapping into the heart and life and spirit of God. So that's really, really good. But if you are struggling, if you are battling with finances, uh, try and be humble and do seek help. You know, don't trumpet, I'm rubbish with money, I'm in debt. But go to someone and say, I really do need help. And a lot of things in life, if they're kind of hidden away and you're just trying to battle on your own in the dark, the enemy really gets you and it's really hard. But if you can find the right person, come to one of the leaders of the church and just ask for help, then you bring it to the light in an appropriate way and you can get help and uh, some of that burden can be lifted from you. We can point you in the right direction to get help with money and finances and how to get out of debt. Now we're in the season now of the church year called Lent, as many of you are aware and we're particularly focusing on the events that lead up to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ the high point in the Christian calendar and year sometimes we kind of celebrate Christmas and that's fantastic but the events of the death and resurrection of Jesus are enormously significant and so I've called today the road to Calvary now Jesus' disciples, his followers, had fantastic times with him. They saw miracles. They saw him preaching the truth to huge crowds. They saw hundreds and hundreds of people healed. So there were fantastic times. And there are great times in knowing Jesus. And if you think of a time where he's answered your prayers, or you've seen a friend come to faith, or miracles happen, they're really exciting times in following Jesus. But there are also very, very hard times as well. And the road that we walk and the road that Jesus walked uh, wasn't just uh, a bed of roses and joy and celebration. Jesus walked a difficult road. He was challenged. He was criticized. He was put down. And as we think of the time coming up to Calvary, we think of his unjust trial, the torture, and the death that he died on the cross unjustly but as a wonderful work of God to redeem us it's a hard road that Jesus walked on as well and we're looking at Luke 22 today Jenny read a bit out of that earlier about communion if you've got your Bibles with you looking at Luke 22 and this is the the run-up to that week that weekend of trial and death and resurrection what happened before that and it's a difficult road and it's a road that uh, had betrayal and denial on it. And I haven't picked the kind of happiest theme for today. But it's reality. It's in life. It was in the life of Jesus. And we're looking a bit about that last week of his earthly ministry and a bit about the 
the betrayal by Judas and the denial by Peter. So Luke 22, if you put the next slide up, please, Scott. Thank you. Jesus was under attack, and uh, this is what his enemies had planned for him. Just uh, one shot from the, the, the movie, The Passion of the Christ. He's under attack, and uh, the enemies are after him. If you put the next slide, please. And um, what we see in Luke 22 and verse 1 is this. The festival of unleavened bread, which is also called Passover, was approaching. So it's that season of the year. It's a very important time in the Jewish calendar. And I'll just read out uh, this verse from the Old Testament. On the 14th day of the month, you must celebrate the Lord's Passover. On the following day, the 15th day of the month, a joyous seven-day festival will begin, but no bread made with yeast may be eaten. The first day of the festival will be an official day for holy assembly, and no ordinary work may be done on that day. As a special gift, you must present a burnt offering to the Lord, two young bulls, one ram, and seven one-year-old male lambs, all with no defects. So we're in the Passover season. What was the Passover all about? About the Exodus and what happened in the Exodus. So God's people were in slavery. They were oppressed. And the angel of death was going to come on that nation. And they sacrificed the lamb, put the blood over the doorposts and lintels. And the angel of death passed over and they were saved. And then they were released in the exodus. Why was the bread unleavened? No time. So you couldn't wait for your bread to rise. And it's interesting, Jenny's brought the unleavened bread uh, today um, to celebrate our communion. So that's the season. And they were thinking about the oppression and slavery that they'd been, but they celebrate the fact that God came and set them free and redeemed them. But Jesus was under attack at this point. And look at the next verse. The leading priests and teachers of religious law were plotting how to kill Jesus, but they were afraid of the people's reaction. Jesus is under attack His life is under threat, a bit like a former Russian spy. He's a marked man, and they want to get him. And there are three groups often challenge Jesus. Uh, The leading priests or the chief priests, the teachers of the religious law or scribes who wrote the law down, and then the Pharisees. They were a particular religious faction. And often as you read the Gospels, people from these three groups are having a go at Jesus, trying to trick him, trying to trip him up. And just two of the groups are mentioned here, the chief priests and uh, the tribes or teachers of the law. So maybe the Pharisees were a bit more up for for religious debate, but these two groups had more political power, and they wanted to put pressure on the Roman authorities and see Jesus executed And it all begs a question for me, and that was, why did some people hate Jesus? Why did some people hate Jesus? What's wrong with Jesus? That's the question, is what's wrong with Jesus? Why was he a marked man? Why were they trying to kill him and execute him? If you put the next slide up, please, Scott. I actually Googled why I hate Jesus there's not that much there, and a lot of it is a lot of drivel. 
it's, uh, there was some stuff why I hate religion but love Jesus to kind of counter it. And there was one article, and it was just a load of drivel about why they hated Jesus. But why would you? Why is his name a swear word? He healed the sick. He fed the multitudes. His words were gracious and full of spirit and life. Why would anyone hate him? John, one of his disciples, said this, and uh, you may have a friend who speaks well of you, but John saw something amazing in the life of Jesus. He writes in John 1.14, The word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. Or another place, he was full of grace and truth. And we've seen his glory, the glory of God the Father's one and only Son. So someone that lived really up close and personal with Jesus says he's full of the glory of Father God. He's full of grace. He's full of truth. Would anyone who lives anywhere near me say anything like that about me? Another disciple, Thomas, who we nicknamed Doubting Thomas, he realizes who Jesus is. He gets down on his knees and says of Jesus, my Lord and my God. So people that were close to Jesus saw that he was absolutely wonderful and began to realize that he was God himself in human form. What about other people? Pilate, the Roman governor, and he was the guy that uh, had to set in train for Jesus to be tortured, to be whipped, and to be executed. What did he say about Jesus? He was not exactly one of his friends or disciples. But John 18, verse 38 says this. Pilate says, I find no fault in him at all. That someone who doesn't like Jesus, doesn't know Jesus very well, doesn't respect him, has all the power. But he says, I've examined Jesus, I've questioned him, and I can find no fault in him at all. So why would anyone hate Jesus? Why would the religious leaders want to kill him? Now, people have reflected on that, and some people say that uh, they objected to his radical inclusiveness. He reached out to the hated tax collectors. He hung out with sinners. He spent time with them. He touched lepers. So maybe it's his radical inclusiveness that made them hate him. But I'm not sure that's the, the right reason. Someone said this. It wasn't Jesus' expansive love that did for him. It was his claim to ultimate authority, his claim to be the Messiah, his claim to godness, to be divine, God in human form, 100% man, yet 100% God. If you put the next slide up, uh, Scott, I was struck by this quote from a theologian called Kevin de Jong this week. As we approach another Holy Week, let's certainly talk about the compassion and love of Jesus. How could we not? But if we don't talk about his unique identity as the Son of God, we've not explained the reason for his death, and we've not given people reason enough to worship. And we need to realize at this time of year that we're looking at Jesus Wonderful, full of grace and truth, God in human form. But because he was God, because he was so good, because he was such a light in the darkness of this world, those that hate God, those that couldn't cope with the reality that he was the Son of God, wanted him dead. 
And at this time, we're not thanking God for a good man. We're not thanking God for a nice prophet. We're thanking God that he came in person in his son, Jesus Christ, to reconcile the whole world to himself if we accept and we believe who he is. So the chief priests and religious leaders wanted Jesus dead. They needed to arrest him and then persuade the Roman authorities to execute him. Then they found one of Jesus' disciples who was willing to collaborate with them, to lead them to Jesus in the dark of the night so they could capture him quietly and avoid the crowds protesting or rioting. And what was the name of that disciple? Judas. Judas. Next slide, please. That's there. Uh, And uh, again, it's from a film. Uh, I think that's after the event where he's had the bribery money and he's trying to give it back. Uh, That's uh, an actor playing him. And anyone see anything significant in the stained glass window there? That's meant to be a representation of Judas. Yeah, so... Uh, in stained glass windows, when it's Judas, he either doesn't have a halo or he has a dark one. So that's a picture uh, in, the, in uh, stained glass windows to indicate who that person is. And if we call someone a, a betrayer or a traitor, what do we call them? We call them uh, a Judas, don't we? Was he a particularly evil person? Do we hate him? Should we vilify him? You know, What's the right way to consider who Judas was, the betrayer? Let's look at a bit of uh, evidence, evidence for the prosecution, uh, why maybe we'd uh, want to say bad things about Judas, maybe a little bit of evidence for the defense. Uh, How bad was he? What was going on in his heart and mind? Well, evidence for the prosecution, he was chosen by Jesus. He spent three years in Jesus' presence. He shared meals They traveled together. They shared lodgings together. He was trusted by Jesus. He heard the teaching of Jesus, and not just the public parables everyone heard, but behind the scenes, the unpacking of that teaching. He saw and participated in wonderful healings and miracles. He had all that for three years, yet he still chose to betray Jesus to the authorities. So there's problems there, aren't there, with uh, his attitude and what he did. Luke 22, verse 21 says this. But here at this table, sitting among us as a friend, is the man who will betray me. This is Jesus speaking over the table at the Last Supper. For it's determined that the Son of Man must die. But what sorrow awaits the one who betrays him? The disciples began to ask each other which of them would ever do such a thing. So we see there's sorrow for someone that would betray Jesus. And the disciples, on the basis of this conversation, knew it would be a terrible thing to do. And Judas was part of that. And maybe at that point it wasn't too late to change his mind. But he still got up from the table and went to see Jesus' enemies. And then when he comes back with them later in the garden, verse 47 says this, but even as Jesus said this, a crowd approached, led by Judas, one of the 12 disciples. Jesus walked over to Jesus to greet him with a kiss. But Jesus said, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And to go up in that way, to have lined up the arrest and betrayal, and then to go up and kiss your friend on the cheek, 
as a sign that he was the one that should be arrested and imprisoned. That's quite a step, isn't it? That's kind of, in my mind, evidence for the prosecution. And after Jesus' death in uh, Acts chapter 1, Peter says this, he deserted us and he's gone where he belongs. So there's condemnation of Judas and it's a, a terrible thing to betray someone. But is there evidence for the defense as well? Someone needed to betray Jesus. And had he been chosen for that job, do you have a choice in the matter? Did he really know what he was doing? Any thoughts about that? Did God just line him up from that? It wasn't really his fault, but he'd just been chosen for that job. Makes you think about these things. How culpable was he? How manipulated was he? Matthew 27 verse 1 says this. Very early in the morning, the leading priests and the elders of the people met again to lay plans for putting Jesus to death. Then they bound him, led him away, and took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, realized that Jesus had been condemned to die, he was filled with remorse. So he'd set it up, but I, I don't know what, why, why on earth do it. He was part of the, the band. It seemed madness. There didn't seem to be anything much to gain out of it for Judas. And as soon as he realized what was going on, he was full of remorse. So Judas took the 30 pieces of silver back to the leading priests and elders. I've sinned, he declared. He realized he'd sinned against God, even though he'd thought it was the right thing to do. I've betrayed an innocent man. He realized just after this that Jesus was indeed innocent. What do we care, the chief priests retorted. That's your problem. Not very nice people, were they? Then Judas threw the silver coins down in the temple and went out and hanged himself. It's a very poignant story, very sad. The betrayal was a moment of madness, perhaps. As soon as he came to his senses, he was filled with remorse. He wanted to give the money back, and he hanged himself in contrition. These are some of the things going on in Judas's heart and mind. What part did Satan play in the story? What part did Satan play? Let's read out again from Luke 22, verse 3, the next verse from our opening to. Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve disciples. He went to the leading priests and captains of the temple guard to discuss the best way to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted, and they promised to give him money. So he agreed and began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus so they could arrest him when the crowds weren't around. So Satan entered Judas. Was Judas himself really to blame? Was he in control of his actions? That's another question. And uh, that's a picture of the character that plays Satan in the film, The Passion of the Christ. Can Satan enter into anyone he likes and manipulate them? Yes? No? Who thinks no? Yeah, I think most people think no. We've got a little insight from John's Gospel here, one week before. Let's read it together. Six days before the Passover celebration began, so just the week before, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man that he'd raised from the dead. 
A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who ate with Jesus. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance. So her most valuable possession, probably her pension, all that she had to get through the rest of life, she broke and poured it out and offered it in respect to Jesus. And the fragrance of that literally And I think the fragrance of a heart of love towards Jesus filled the house. Verse 4 of John 12. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, That perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. So he was angry at this outpouring of love to Jesus. And he had a point to play. You know, this this valuable thing. Why don't you just sell it and give the money to the poor? It sounded very good. And then we get verse 6 of John 12. Not that Judas cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money bag, he often stole some for himself. And so before the betrayal, we've got an insight into the character of who Judas was. And we've got this amazing contrast between a woman who gave everything out of love for Jesus and Judas, who had his hand in the money bag and was using some of that for himself. Now, I don't believe Satan can enter our lives and control us. And he never has complete control over us. I really don't think that's the case. I think he never, ever does. He can only influence for bad and enter our lives if we open the door for him. That's the only way in. And Judas, with his stealing and his lying and his deception, opened the way for Satan to use him. And then when Satan had finished using him, he left him. And Judas kind of woke up out of the deception and realized what what he'd done. So I think Satan played a role. Satan obviously hates God. And he hates people made in the image of God. And he maybe thought if he killed Jesus, he would win. And he manipulated Judas. But Judas did have some responsibility. He couldn't just do that without Judas' permission. Judas had to open a door and open a window for the enemy to get hold of his life. But do we judge Judas? Do we judge? It's a very sad story. But do we vilify and condemn him or just do we look at how people can be manipulated and it's horrible that he was so manipulated and went along with the enemy that uh, he betrayed our wonderful Lord Jesus but then there are 11 other disciples aren't there and as well as betrayal there's a denial that you know of if you know the story And Peter was a leading disciple, and maybe you could say he represents the other disciples. The other disciples stayed with Jesus. Peter and and the other ten stayed with Jesus throughout the meal where Judas ran off to betray him. And then the other disciples and Peter were in the garden with Jesus when the people came to arrest him. But they ran away. And Peter kind of followed on behind when Jesus was arrested 
And you know the story, if, you, if you've been around faith for a while, he gathers around the fire in a courtyard, and a servant girl and the guards say to Peter, you must be one of Jesus' disciples. And they say it three times, and three times Peter denies it. I don't know that man. He denies any knowledge of Jesus. And Luke 22 again, verse 61, at that moment the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Suddenly the Lord's words flash through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. And Peter left the courtyard weeping bitterly. I think Peter shows the human weakness of the disciples. And Jesus is left alone to face his torture and unjust trial. So Judas betrayed Jesus. The other 11, they either disappear or deny Jesus. Is betrayal worse than denial? Yeah, at least Jesus acknowledged who Jesus was. It maybe dawned on him after he'd betrayed him uh, earlier than some of the other disciples. Part of me thinks betrayal is worse, but betrayal and denial were both uh, bad things, weren't they? And Jesus was abandoned. But the disciples are restored. Judas hangs himself. He's gone from the scene. But the other disciples do get uh, restored. In Luke twenty-two thirty-one, 31, uh, right in the context of this meal and these events that we're looking at today in the same chapter of the Bible, Jesus turns to Peter and he uses his other name, Simon, his real name, not the kind of uh, holy nickname Peter, which means the rock. But Peter's name Simon. He says this, Simon, Simon, Satan's asked to sift each of you like wheat. But I've pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith will not fail. So when you've repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. And Jesus spoke his name twice, Simon, Simon. There are seven times in the whole Bible where God addresses a person by their name and says it twice, seven very, very significant time. So listen up, Moses, Moses. You can look at the, the, who the seven characters were. So it means let's listen up and take this very, very seriously and importantly. It says Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. And that you is the you plural, not just Simon Peter, but all the disciples. Satan wants to sift you like wheat. And if you can imagine... You're trying to get the good grain out of all the husks and rubbish. You shake it around like mad. So that's what the enemy wanted to do. He found his way into Judas' life. And with the other 11, he wanted to shake the life out of them. That's how much he hates people. That's what he wanted to do. Satan's demanded to do this. Um, And then he says that I've prayed for you. Peter and I'm praying that your faith won't fail and when you've repented and turned to me again you strengthen the other disciples your brothers so even though Peter was under attack even though they were all under attack and even though they would fail and deny him and run away Jesus prayed for them and they were going to be restored and they were going to be strengthened And they were going to get on track again. So all the disciples were attacked by Satan. Eleven a week, they run away, deny Jesus. And Judas opens the door to Satan and betrays him. 
I'm glad I've kind of cheered you up on a Sunday morning. <laughs> but it's part of the, the reality of the Easter story. Uh, Sam will talk about the cross next week, and then I'll look at the resurrection the week after, and we'll move on through that enormously significant, the most significant weekend in the whole of human history. But what can we learn from the few things from this story, the build-up to the Easter weekend? I just thought of a few and we'll look at them and finish, and then we'll go back to worship and prayer. What can we learn? Firstly, we're loved by God. We're loved by God. We're hated by Satan. He loves to manipulate and use people and cause evil and trouble and wreck our lives and wreck God's purposes. But we're loved by God. And when you read the, the story of uh, Holy Week, the story that we're looking at at this time of year in John's Gospel, It starts off by saying this, before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew his hour had come to leave this world and return to his father. He'd loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. So either means he loved them till right up to the time he died on the cross, or it means he loved them to the nth degree, as much as it's possible to love anyone that's how he loved his disciples and so we are totally wonderfully loved by God he cares for us he wants the best for us he doesn't want the enemy to ruin our lives Uh, he provides a way through for us he will look after us he will care for us he will pour blessing into our lives he will come alongside us and encourage us every step of the road that we travel So we're loved by God. The reality is from this story that we fail as disciples. Anyone not failed? I can't see those hands. We fail as disciples. I don't know if we'd ever betray him. Maybe maybe some of that Judas heart is in me. Would I betray Jesus? Have I ever denied him? I think I have. Don't admit you're a Christian. I had a friend that was very good whenever he went to a new workplace. He'd kind of make it known he was a Christian. He'd nail his colors to the mask. Uh, and it was, he said it would help, help him to live more like a Christian because he'd kind of put himself on the line in that way. I, I'd more kind of hide it away uh, and not be proud of my faith and be very reticent. We deny him. We betray him. We see what happened with those 12 disciples and those same characteristics are in our hearts. So we do know what it is to fail him. And we're attacked by Satan. That's a reality. All of them were, not just Judas. All of them were attacked by the enemy. So watch out. Don't be complacent. And I need to learn not to open the door to Satan by lying by talking badly about people, by gossiping, by failing to give what I'd like to give to God, using my money in the wrong way, all sorts of ways that I could open the door. I need to be aware that I'm under attack and I don't want to open the door to the enemy. But the good news is that Jesus is praying for us. It's not so much whether you believe in God, it's the fact that he believes in you. He really does. He wants you came and lived and died so you can be the man or woman that God intended you to be. Not a marred, satanic version, but the man or woman flourishing as fully as you possibly can in this earthly life. 
in the way that God intended. And even though you're under attack, Jesus is there and he's praying for you. Hebrews 7.25, Therefore Jesus is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. We find salvation in Jesus. We find salvation in him. And he can restore us when we fail. And he can strengthen us so like Peter we can strengthen others. And then the last three, Jesus helps us when we're tempted. And we don't have to give in to temptation. This is uh, a verse that came out at our weekend away at Ashburnham uh, at the beginning of last month. 1 Corinthians 10.13 The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you're tempted, he'll show you a way out so that you can endure. And we feel those temptations. And to be honest, sometimes I give in to them. But there's no excuse. God can give me a way out to do the right thing with the power of his Holy Spirit working in me. God is not distant in Jesus. God is right there with us in human form. And he got involved in the dirt and mess of our lives. We mess up. We fail. We're attacked. We might deny him. Maybe we'd even betray him. But Jesus didn't stand aloof from that. He didn't stay in heaven in the comfort and the glory. He got involved in our life. And he gets involved in the mess and in the destruction And he comes with his healing and redeeming presence. Have you experienced what it's like to be betrayed? I don't know if you have. Maybe that rings a chord with some of you. Jesus experienced it. He lived it. He went through it. And whatever you've experienced, Jesus has been touched with it through his earthly life. And he can be in it with you. And he can lead you through it and out of it into the wonderful life that he's called you for. And God's love ultimately wins. Romans 5, 8. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. We mess up, we fail. We're a bit like Judas, we're a bit like Peter. But even though we're sinners, God loves us so much. He came in Jesus to save us and set us free. And Ephesians three nineteen. May you experience really really experience the love of christ and through it and though it is too great to understand fully then you'll be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from god he wants you to know and experience his life so that's some of the the run up to the easter story it's not the the glory days of the multitudes It's not feeding the 5,000. It's not the miracles and healing. It's a reality of enormous satanic pressure on Jesus just before he went to the cross. And we need to, to look into that harshness, look into that reality, and think about how it relates to us. To be aware of our weaknesses as disciples, but to thank God that Jesus was there in it, that he spoke words of life and love to his disciples, that he helped them become 
uh, the men they would be leading the huge move of redemption as the church of God was born in the book of Acts. Let's pray together, then I'll hand back to Jenny and to Luke. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your life. And when we get caught up in lots of other narratives of life and all that's going on in our world, help us, not just at this time of year, but throughout the year, to look at this great narrative of your life, of your death on the cross, of your resurrection, of your offer of new life to us. Lord, help us to be humble in our discipleship and our walking with you. Help us to be aware that we're under attack from an enemy that hates us and hates you. But Lord, help us to find your love and find your power in life to be the kind of people that you want us to be. Thank you, Lord. Amen.